What we've got here is failure to communicate. Freedom. Freedom? Well, sign away my freedom. Why, this is ridiculous. Don't be corny, brother. <laughs> sure, our system of free enterprise isn't perfect. But before we throw it away for some imported double talk, let's turn the clock back a few years to see what it's done for us. With your host, Mike Paul. Hey guys, welcome back to Pulse to the Wall. I am your host, Mike Paul. Today I am joined once again by my good buddy, Tyler. And also we are joined by uh, at Liberty Anders, um, also known as Maggie, who is another great up-and-coming libertarian. So Maggie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I recently got home from a long day at the office. We're preparing to do um, our first digital summit, which is going to be very stressful, but I'm doing great. How are you guys? Good. I'm doing well. Um, <laughs> is that is that on Zoom? Are you doing it on Zoom? No, we're using a, pro a program called Hopin. So I didn't realize this um, until we started digging into doing an online summit, but there's like at least 20 different online platforms to do like video conferencing. So yikes. It, yeah. Yeah. It's a booming industry now. It is. <laughs> it is. Huge demand. And you're going to, depending on, on the age group of the audience, you're going to get the, can you hear me? No, you're on mute. What about now? No, you're still on mute. Yeah, I think it'll be a little bit of an older audience since we're, um, I work for a think tank, so it's a lot of policy discussion and talking to legislators and all of that kind of stuff. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Be prepared yeah. for technical difficulties. So I'll be prepared, yeah. You're I'm good. ready. Mm -hmm. well, cool. well, Maggie, give us a little bit of your background from why you, you know, followed libertarianism and um, just a little bit about what your uh, what your cause is and what you what you want to see out of the, the future of libertarianism? Yeah, definitely. So a lot of people. I apologize for some of the cats are making in the back. My bad. <laughs> um, a lot no of people don't know this. Some do, but I started as um, I started non political. But my mom did campaign work for Ron Paul back in two thousand eight. So that was really my first introduction. But I was really young. I was nine years old. Um, at the time, so I didn't really absorb any of the content. Um, and once I became a teenager, I definitely fell victim to the online leftism trap. And um, one second, guys, I'm so sorry. No worries. Dude, you need to stop. Okay. <laughs> That's my mom's cat. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Don't worry about. It. Yeah, but she's young. But um, anyways, so. Um, I definitely fell into the online leftism trap and got a little too like in too deep when I was maybe around 15 years old. And then I kind of pulled back the reins a lot because I realized that um, like online echo chambers can really radicalize you pretty quickly and leave you blind to the reality of politics and the world around you. Um, and so once I started doing my own research, I realized that I was a libertarian. Um, a lot of that came about because um, while I was still pretty socially liberal, um, I didn't believe in enforcing my social ideas on people. I just wanted the government to kind of stay out 
of what people to choose to do with their lives and their bodies. Um, but also I realized that a lot of um, the economic programs, the Keynesian economics um, running this country, <laughs> were actually causing a lot of pain to people. And one of the reasons I was a leftist in the first place is because I live in Baton Rouge, which um, we might get into a little bit later, but you know, Baton Rouge is divided very heavily along racial lines. Um, and the quote unquote black neighborhoods in Baton Rouge are extremely impoverished. And a large part of my, um, my political awakening had to do with, you know, how can we promote economic growth in these areas? How can we make people's lives better? And I realized that a lot of the problems we were encountering had to do with government and government interference. Um, and Louisiana is definitely one of those states that has a lot of government interference that are the, those policies are designed to protect corporations rather than giving an equal playing field to small businesses. If that makes sense. Yeah, but well, we're in Illinois, so we know all about that. We are, <laughs> you know, way too I, much I have, government uh, interference. I've, I escaped Illinois a few years ago, but I, really? I, I return regularly, so I, I still get to see it. Yeah. So, it, yeah, the Illinois, I think it's like California, New York, and then Illinois in terms of like people leaving. I think it was a two to one rate that people were leaving Illinois to coming in. Yeah. Louisiana is 47th on the list of oh, wow. population growth. So we're right there with you. A lot of people don't realize how bad it is here. Wow. Yeah. That's at least cool. you guys got good weather though. I mean, we have like, you know, the extreme cold, extreme hot, no scenery and horrible mm -hmm. taxes and like over, you know, very large government. So we have like the worst of all worlds here, but yeah, <laughs> kind of trapped here. My roots are, my roots are pretty deep, yeah. but you know, I what are you going to do? Leave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's, you know, you, you buy like a like a hundred and fifty thousand dollar house, and your property taxes are like five to six thousand a year. Like, and the yes. schools still suck. Oh my every, god! Every every voting cycle, it's the same routine where it's like, yeah. well, we need more money for the schools, and everyone's like, we give you more money every year, yeah. and the school still sucks. So what's going on here? Yeah, it's because their for pension sure. fund is just bleeding out, so they keep covering pensions, and then more people are retiring, and it's going bankrupt. So they keep, you know, squeezing blood from a stone through all the taxpayers. Y'all have a teacher union problem, don't you? Oh yeah. yeah. Yes, we do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have, to, I have to, I have a lot of educators and one side of my family. So I have to kind of mind my P's and Q's at the uh, family get togethers. I bet. Yeah. They're like, so, so what do you think of what's going on in the world, Tyler? I'm like, uh, we're not going to talk about it. Let's open presents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've yet to see someone actually make a compelling argument against school choice other than you know, unions screeching about how this is going to negatively affect teachers, which I don't buy because um, from at least what I know, teachers are really burdened by the regulations that go into public schools, the red tape, um, you know, the schedules that they have to follow. And also a lot of our money doesn't end up going to teachers. It goes to administrators. It's right. and, and they've grown like crazy over yeah. the last like three decades. Mm -hmm. And administrators are pretty much designed to make teachers lives hell. Not all mm -hmm. of them, obviously, but um, I do think a lot of sector, sector unions um, kind of dupe 
the people in them into thinking that they're working on their behalf. When I do really think that um, given the opportunity, teachers um, in Louisiana and Illinois would actually really love the outcomes of school choice. And I think they would like the environments better and would be able to have a little bit more creativity, you know? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Tyler and I have kind of a similar origin story because we met when we were 18, which was in 2009 because we went to, we graduated and became aircraft mechanics. We met in school there and mm -hmm. Tyler came from a little more socially left. And I was like a Rush Limbaugh, Hannity, neocon conservative, just like America, you know? Yeah. And we both kind of worked on each other and then met in the middle and became like free market libertarians. But um, yeah, everyone seems to have like that red pill moment where it's like, you see mm -hmm. one thing that government is really messing up and you like, realize we need to stop going to these people for answers because they yeah. are causing all the problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. And at least socially, my red pill moment, which wasn't really a red pill, it was more like a moderate pill. <laughs> um, so in Baton Rouge, I think it was 2015 or 2016, um, an unarmed black man was shot like 13 times in the back um, at a gas station, uh, maybe like a mile away from my dad's house. And then a week later, four police officers were killed in a gas station less than a mile from my mom's house in response. And um, I don't know if you saw my Twitter rant today, but like I definitely have a very moderate approach when it comes to social issues, because I think um, in our current climate, we tend to kind of either swing one way or the other. And um, basic human instinct is to feel like, um, is to feel like the other side is attacking you constantly. So um, I definitely think people could benefit from talking to one another and um, kind of bouncing ideas off of each other to come to a, a conclusion that's more based in reality, you know? Right. It's, I, I did see that. I, yeah. I saw it briefly in between meetings at work and I was like, oh, that's a good point. Because <laughs> it's, it's true and I, I also, agreed with your, your point about the uh, like conservative outreach to minority groups is it's kind of trash at, mm -hmm. at best. And, yeah. and it, it really shows just how out of touch, like with the culture war that they are, they're, they're always two steps behind. Right. And I think a lot of times, okay, so can, let's just talk briefly about what conservative outreach to minorities and women is. So what I've seen, at least, and I'm very involved in conservative spaces as well as libertarian spaces. So what I've seen is that conservatives will um, like put up a talking head like Candace Owens, who tells people to stop looking at themselves as a victim, which is fine. But it's all about the way you approach it. Um, and a lot of time, the a lot of times the cons the conservative approach to racism is denial that it exists or that it impacts people negatively. Same thing with sexism or anything else. Um, and a lot of people were frustrated with me because they felt that I was saying that all black people need to feel like victims, which is not my point at all. Um, not at all. Um, good for you if nothing has happened to you like that. That's really great actually, but um, I was an anti-feminist in college because I didn't think all these things that feminists were telling me were going to happen would. I thought that this was just made up. And then I got into the workforce 
And a lot of these horrible things happened to me. And it really broadened my perspective um, about like the victim slash victor mentality. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, you know, there's, it's the truth is always somewhere in the middle in, mm -hmm. on most issues, but, and yeah, like when you, like you're saying about talking, you know, Candace Owens approach to like saying, don't be a victim. I mean, you always catch more flies with honey than vinegar. So when you come on yeah. strong like that, they just want to disagree. They don't want to hear what you have to say. So it's, you know, I, I like the Scott Horton approach where you attack the left from the left and the right from the right. Mm -hmm. And it seems way more effective where it's kind of like, no, I'm with you on this issue, but here's why I'm against it. Even though we may have different reasons for having the same issue, like, mm -hmm. you know, like gay marriage for one, it's like, they think that these people are marginalized and, you know, to some degree, I'm sure that's been a lot throughout history, but we're more like, why is government involved with marriage in the first place? Like we're, we defend right. your right, but we're, you know, but we're at, for, from a different angle and then you mm -hmm. align forces and, you know, just let the um, small differences kind of go by the wayside. It's way more effective. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's a really great way for libertarians to start making an entrance into Republican or Democrat spaces is by um, attacking their position from their side. So I've seen a lot of libertarian Republicans um, attack uh, wars by talking about how much we spend on defense um, and kind of lighting the flames of patriotism to say, oh, why are we sending our young men and women to die, um, you know, for unjust causes, stuff like that. So I, I do think you have a really good point there. I've, I've also had a, I've had a lot more luck instead of trying to just outright like debate someone, which is, it, it was a, a hobby of mine for a while, just to stir, <laughs> mostly just to stir the pot. I just, yeah. I had no real goal in mind, but I started, I would just keep asking questions, like mm -hmm. causing them to think and dig deeper and get to the real root cause of a lot of problems. You know, you yeah. mentioned like, like economic policy and they're like, yeah, we're, you know, everything's just so expensive and I'm getting screwed. And I said, why are you getting screwed? And they're like, well, prices keep going up because these companies want to make more money. And I said, and who writes the laws to allow these companies to make more money and who writes laws that favor big corporations. And they're like, well, you can see like that, that deer in the headlight. Moment. They're like, <laughs> well, the government does. And I said, and who lobbies the government to write those laws? And, you know, corporations. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's what it, you know, if you look at the, uh, the, the Bitcoin standard lays it out perfectly about how the more government money that's printed, the more this nonsense continues, the more the game gets rigged against small businesses, because what happens is business becomes about expansion versus mastering your craft. You know, there was a time in America where a lot of businesses, if you manufactured a product, you did it all in house because mm -hmm. it was too expensive to haggle with contractors and outsource. But now the name of the game since there's all this government money flowing and the financial sector is so influential that the name of the game is expand. You, you keep expanding and you outsource more because you don't want to deal with it. And it's cheap to outsource because money, interest rates, everything's cheap. It's not based on how well you run your business and save. And, yeah. you know, that's, I just try to point people in that direction or like, if they're like, I think the government should run all healthcare. I'm like, okay. I said, how do you feel when you go to the DMV? <laughs> yes. And they're like, well, I hate it. And I said, who runs the DMV? Mm -hmm. Well, the government does. Mm -hmm. I yeah. said, how do you think healthcare is going to be any different? 
Yeah. You're gonna you, be, you come there, you, you need three forms of ID, you forget one, you're like bleeding out. They're like, go home, you need two more forms. Well, look at the VA. The VA is a prime oh example. God. Yeah, like, you need three forms of ID. One of them has to be your pay stub. You know, it, it's just yeah. absurd. Yes. And, and that's it's hilarious. Well, in, yeah, in like, regards to the to the healthcare one, I always ask my uh, you know my left wing friends who are all for the you know single payer healthcare, I'm like so everybody has coverage. They're like yes, like everyone in the country, yes. So even homeless people have this coverage. And they're like yes. I'm like okay, so you don't think that maybe some of them might take advantage of that and get a free like climate controlled stay in a bed with a meal, and there might be lines out the door for people who are just are kind of hypochondriacs using it as an excuse to get a warm place to stay. Like that's a whole problem. That's a huge homeless problem in this country, and that's a whole thing you have to yeah. grapple with if you did that. And they kind of like they don't really have an answer. They're like, well, I want to help homeless people and I want healthcare, so it kind of like short circuits their brain. And yeah. but they think that nobody would take advantage of these systems, which is preposterous because every government system gets exploited. Absolutely. Um, and I think one of the ways that I've always talked to people about healthcare is I like to focus on medications because that's a lot of, a lot of the time people like to focus on, Oh, well this person bought insulin and like jacked up the price and patents are a great thing to talk about when it comes to healthcare, because a lot of times, um, Patents are the things that are keeping competition from happening. And I personally am not a big fan of intellectual property. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways to talk to the left about liberty and the government. Um, but one thing I've noticed is that they always just think, okay, well, that was them running the government. My guys are not going to do that. Yep. My guys yeah. Are yeah, that's, it. that's that's not real communism. <laughs> My right. guys are going to be the good guys, and they're just going to know exactly how to run policy for a country of how many people do we have here? It's 320 well, it's, mil plus yeah. documented. So, yeah. so <laughs> I don't know the the real total is yeah, <laughs> give and or take. They don't they don't take into account the fact that the government is like one giant corporation that has no mm -hmm. competition. It's, you know. it's organized crime in suits. Oh, the, the irony is like they despise monopolies and, and corporations or it's like, but you want to monopolize all the biggest industries. I mean, you already have a monopoly on like, you know, public education and, and uh, violence and fire well, and a million, we'll a million other ones. Way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, so how well are all these working out? And I mean, you could argue like, you know, fire departments are, they're efficient at putting out fires and they get they're timely and they have great workers, but like, you know, financially and fiscally, like a lot of them have bankrupt pension funds and everything because government's running it uncompeted. And it's always the future generation pays for everything. That's how their whole system operates. Yeah, we're kind of struggling with pension stuff in Louisiana right now. So our infrastructure is notoriously terrible. Um, and right now they're trying to propose a gas tax to put some more money in the coffers for um, infrastructure and roads and all of that kind of stuff. Obviously, libertarians are pretty woke on the whole problem with roads, but that problem gets magnified when you look at Louisiana's infrastructure problems. Um, why does it take five years to complete a project that should be done in two weeks? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, why does it cost so much? Why are pensions out of control? Um, and why are you 
relying on a dwindling population to fund all of this. Because the reality of Louisiana's economic situation is that people are leaving because we don't have jobs here, or at least we're losing them because we're not a business-friendly climate and we're right next to the big boys like Texas and Tennessee and Florida. So like all of our businesses are kind of leaving. Um, so that means our population is leaving. So it's getting smaller, but the economic burden is getting larger on each individual citizen, which kind of expedites that process and speeds it up and get makes it go faster. And I think y'all in Illinois are probably dealing with something like that too. Mm -hmm. uh, I tried to sell Obama's Senate seat. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we did do that. Yeah. It's um, the same. Yeah. Same thing. The tax burden because your, your tax base is leaving. Yeah. And, I had no idea Louisiana was in that kind of shape either. I figured oh, since they're in the South, they would be a little more red, a little more fiscally yeah. conservative, but we're talking so much. populism. Y'all. Right. It's bad. Okay. Our, our governor is a Democrat. Mm -hmm. Not because like our governor is a Democrat and elected within a red state because he's socially conservative and will vote for pro-life issues and will vote pro second amendment, all that good stuff. Um, but we'll also just kind of um, pass really, in my opinion, bad economic policy. Um, also a weird little Louisiana issue, our car insurance rates which have to do with our legal situation. Um, and Louisiana's legal situation is a nightmare. Uh, we are one of the most onerously licensed states in the country, which is an obvious problem. And it's something I like to point to when we're talking about why people in our cities are so poor, because there are a lot of industries that lobby the government to keep competition out. So they purposefully place in these licensing procedures for florists, florists here, people who arrange flowers have to get licensed. I don't think and we even have that. Yeah. <laughs> florists have to get licensed. And wow. one person told me that, um, oh, it's because we don't want anyone using invasive species. Hmm. Doesn't customs handle that? Like, yeah. Right. And um, once again, the, the market would just say like that would, the word would get out with social media. This company is bringing in an invasive species and everyone right. would boycott that and they would go out of business right. faster than you could say. Yeah. We got Yelp for that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Hair braiding is licensed. What's that? Hair braiding. Hair braiding. Oh, geez. Yeah. Well, we got. Oh, yeah, I've heard about that. Like the yeah. barrier to entry for hair braiding is absurd. Oh, I mean, even in this day, I think it's like 40 grand to become a barber. Yeah. Which is just outrageous. And I mean, that's something that you can point to when asking why are certain populations in Louisiana so impoverished? Do you know what I mean? Because the state, because they're getting lobbied by all these different industries are placing higher barriers of entry on people. And therefore people aren't able to um, start from very little with very little capital to actually start their own business. Right. Like it creating generational wealth. Exactly. Uh, if it's like a ladder, you know, to climb up from poverty on out, like they knock the first four rungs out through licensing mm -hmm. and red tape. And now yeah. it's like, well, you can't reach that, but here's a, you know, a monthly check. That's just a fixed income for the rest of your life. If you don't get a job and a lot of right. people that's incentivizing. And after a couple of generations, that becomes a way of life. And we have the and, same problem here. And if they, they make those barriers to entry so high that people just do it without a license and then they get, 
either find out, you know, or they get thrown in jail for it, depending on what they're doing. So it's like a, it's a double-edged sword. They just, they ruin you either way. Absolutely. Um, but here's the thing, like, I know to put, put it in perspective for people, like, I don't think people understand how hard it is. I'm sorry. My cat is just going crazy back there. Calm, right. stop it. <laughs> He's climbing on piles of paper. No, you can't see it. Okay. Um, but one second. This is Tom Cat. He's very big. <laughs> um, <laughs> they always know when you're trying to, to focus on something. And uh, don't worry. We had, we had Gene that. Epstein come on a few months ago, you know, the great economist. And my brother was interviewing with me. And my brother's dog kept barking the whole time. We were trying to talk to Gene. Oh, so no. we can't throw okay. stones. Yeah. He was good. He came back on a second time. So he you can't those. trust pets, but they're very cute. Um, yes. So I had a coworker when I was first starting out who, um, my boss, the manager of the store had met him and had been inspired to give him a job at the time he was homeless. Right. So he started working for this food place that I was working for. This guy, um, literally would like, it would take him two and a half hours to get to work every day because he didn't have a car and we don't have really good public transportation here. So all in all, every day that he worked, which was pretty much every day, it would take him five hours to get to work and back. Oh my goodness. And this is for a job that barely pays anything. Um, and you want to know why? It's because his side of town, there were no jobs. So he had to make the two and a half um, hour trek every day to work um, to get to his job because there weren't really any opportunities where he was living. Um, and that's, yeah, it's like dead economic zones all mm -hmm. over the place. And yeah. Yeah. And it's rural Louisiana too. I mean, um, a lot of these places have just been draining population because we don't have any jobs to give them. Um, not that it's the state's responsibility to give people jobs, but it is the government's responsibility to get out of the way so that people can create jobs for themselves and create generational wealth, which is very important. Um, yeah. We'll talk it about didn't, it. Didn't you say, um, I, I did listen to your interview on Liberty Lockdown. Didn't you say that their tax code was like 400 pages long or something like that? It's either 430 or 340. Um, but that's, <clears throat> that's just exemptions in the corporate tax code. That's absurd. Specifically in exemptions and specifically the corporate tax code. Um, yes, it is absurd. That smells like corporatism to me. That doesn't yeah. sound like capitalism or the free market. And honestly, um, I think one of the real problems with Louisiana's legislature is not that we don't have good people in office. And this is something we can talk about too, about how legislators have really good intentions going into office. It's not that there's not good people. It's that it seems like um, either there's like a lack of urgency to solve some of these problems or that people get in the way or that there's just not a strong enough lobbying effort to combat the lobbying effort of the groups opposing these things. So that's why mm -hmm. we haven't really had huge occupational licensing reform is because 
these very powerful groups will come in and lobby against occupational licensing. And it doesn't make sense. They don't really bring great arguments, but no. um, it's really about the show of force, you know? Yeah. I, I think, so did, did this, uh, did this effect kind of amplify after uh, hurricane Katrina as well? Yeah. So I was, I was like eight years, no, seven or eight during Hurricane Katrina. Um, and I was living in St. Francisville, which, you know, our stuff got messed up, but we were nothing mm -hmm. like New Orleans. New Orleans is like a fishbowl, right? Um, right. Because they're and, all below sea, sea level, correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, there are a few things that New Orleans did to Louisiana. I'm sure there's going to be more that I don't mention, but... One thing that happened is a large part of the New Orleans population left and never came back, yep. right? And New Orleans is a major economic hub in Louisiana, and there's actually a lot of great industry there. So it's interesting. But a lot of them came to Baton Rouge, um, and so the Baton Rouge population started booming, um, which, like, radically uh, reshaped Baton Rouge overnight. Um Another thing that happened is I think this is something I love about Louisiana. There is a very libertarian spirit to us sometimes, especially in the wake of uh, natural disasters. So in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, Louisianans realized that the government is terrible at mobilizing to save us. Right. And a lot of people criticize the government saying that, um, George they, Bush hates black people. Remember that one? Yes, yes, because, <laughs> you know, a lot of people in New Orleans, which has an overwhelmingly um, African-American population, uh, felt as though the government was taking so long and had such poor and inadequate care because they didn't care about the city because it was populated by black people, right? Um but what Louisiana did, um, because notoriously we don't get enough adequate care from the government when these things happen, the Cajun Navy started, which is a completely voluntary force of people who own boats, which a lot of people do here. Because <laughs> take a look that. at the bottom of Louisiana. It's like yeah. very watery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? I came down and rode a fan boat one time. It was exhilarating. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Um, I need to go to Louisiana. Yeah. That's on should. the to-do list. You should. But a lot of people, especially in the southern part, literally live in houses on stilts. And, like, the land around them is disappearing. So a lot of people have boats here. And a lot of people are used to natural disasters. So living in, in south Louisiana, you're probably acutely aware that you're either going to get flooded soon or potentially in the future, right? Mm -hmm. It happens to a lot of people. Um, in 2016, the great flood happened in my city and in a lot of other cities. Um, we didn't get flooded, but about half of Baton Rouge did. Um, and it was the Cajun Navy that actually rescued my grandpa out of his house. It wasn't the U.S. government, no. <laughs> you know? I just love that name. Occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> so I, in, in relation to that, I, I knew a gentleman um, I, that was in the national guard and they were mm -hmm. in hurricane Katrina. Yeah. 
And they, he said that they were told they were just there like peacekeepers. They weren't, you know, they could help people and stuff. But when it came to like local matters, like local police had full authority. And he said that they had to stand by as like the local police would go into pharmacies. And he said their pockets would be so full when they left. Wow. Like it, it was very common, you know, and, and all you saw in the news, of course, was was just people in impoverished neighborhoods looting stuff. But you never saw any of the local police doing it. But he said that they were, he's like, they were way worse than any, any civilians. Well, and I think that whole, look at all these people looting is Mm -hmm. another way to kind of demonize these people in the eyes of the nation. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. There are always going to be people that take advantage of tragedy. That happens literally everywhere. Um, But that's what they do every day in Washington, (laughs) DC. Yeah. But like, the ninth ward is the place that got hit the hardest. And mm-hmm. like, instead of like, yes, obviously they painted the tragedy, but it just kind of bewilders me that they chose to focus on like this very small portion. And you know what? If people were looting because they had no access to food and they didn't have their money. Yeah. Like, <clears throat> I, I'm sorry. I'm going to. Oh, the survival. Yeah. That's, that's like. But, and you know, they also, they also came in and they disarmed everyone. So like if people were put in a situation where they had to protect themselves, they couldn't. And that actually, I think that ended up going to the Supreme court a few years down the road because, you know, as much as I despise a lot of things about the NRA, they, they were like, this is messed up. You can't do that. Yeah. Because of, I mean, yeah. So anything that could have prevented any of this, the government made sure that, you know, they, they put everyone in a position where they, they had to steal. And then, you know, you get the usual argument where it's like, well, why didn't they just leave? They knew the hurricane was coming, but if people don't have the means, you know, if you can't afford to go pay 150 or probably an inflated rate, because all the hotels around the area were filling up. If you can't afford to stay in a hotel, what are you supposed to do? If you know, you can't, you don't have a car, maybe Mm -hmm. what are you supposed to do? And also, if you haven't been in, if you haven't lived in a place that floods pretty frequently, um, you wouldn't understand like the mentality to hunker down. Like, mm-hmm. this is my house. I'm going to stay, you know, <laughs> and yeah. I'm going to weather the storm. Also, like we've been through so many hurricane watches um, and that end up being nothing. Right. And mm-hmm. then we'll end up going through one where they're like, okay, guys, like this time it's real. And we're like, no, it's not. It's like the boy who cried wolf with her. Right. You get numb to it. You never know yeah. when it's going to be the like actual big bad wolf. that's coming to like, right. us, you know, which is kind of sad, but back to the Cajun Navy, like that is a completely voluntary force. And when other natural disasters happen to other States, the Cajun Navy packs up, they, um, latch their boats onto their trucks and they take off as like, that's a so boat, awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, and they do all of this organizing through social media and it's just like the, the spirit of Louisiana. And I've been getting much more in touch with this as I've been home again. It's just resilient. Do you know what I mean? Um, the real challenge here is changing the political culture to value Liberty a little bit more. Um, because I think, we've been cursed by the spirit of Huey P. Long. You know, every man a king. He was 
a very populist governor. Um, a lot of socialists and Bernie Sanders types love him. He was our governor during um, like the twenties, I think. Um, I think I think it was the twenties. Yeah, and he um, he was way worse than Bernie could ever be because Huey P. Long basically took full control of Louisiana's government, like became a mini tyrant in Louisiana. Um, he has his own exhibition in the old state capitol. Um, he did do some things like um, he did a lot of infrastructure projects and tried to bring education to Louisiana. So a lot of people will praise him for that. But he was also like a little mini tyrant and literally criticized FDR for not being left wing enough. Oh dear. That's how <laughs> that's how <laughs> crazy he was. And our state is still possessed by the spirit of Huey P. Long, who was oh. unfortunately assassinated. Uh. Like I would never celebrate an assassination, but yeah, in our state capital. So the political um, trajectory of Louisiana has really been going down this path of populism for a long time, which is why you'll see us um, elect kind of weak need conservatives and um, like pretty fiscally left-wing uh, Democrats that are socially conservative. It's like the Southern Democrat tradition. Yeah. Uh, but really the work I'm doing down here right now, um, and I don't really tell people who I'm working with, but the work I'm doing down here right now is with a think tank that um, is trying to shift the political culture and policy towards liberty. And a lot of people don't understand what think tanks actually do in the modern age, because I'm, I'm sure you've heard people on Twitter be like, Oh, think tanks just sit around and white, write uh, white papers and like hope somebody reads them, which maybe was what they used to do. But thinks thinks sorry, think tanks now, policy institutes now have developed a several pronged strategy to actually tackling issues in a specific area and passing policy. So instead of just writing white papers, it also involves lobbying legislators and. Um, directly targeting citizens with political messaging and all of that kind of stuff. So um, I do feel really passionate about the work I'm doing right now. Um, but also there are um, state policy network affiliated groups in y'all states too, you know, that are working mm -hmm. behind the scenes to get stuff done. They just don't get a lot of rec recognition. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So, so Maggie, you're, I'm just trying to do some math here. So how old are you? 21, 22? 22. Yeah. 22? Okay. Wow. That's, that's very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said uh, Ron Paul 08, you were nine. So it wasn't too hard to do. Yeah. But well, first of all, it's very impressive that you're at that intellectual level at 22. I wasn't there yet. Yeah. Um, I was, I was an idiot at 22. <laughs> yeah. I was still like still Toby, Keith was my, okay. Toby Keith was my foreign policy leader at that age. Um, oh, <laughs> but do you fear at all that being so young that everything you're doing, putting out public content, you know, with podcasts and social media that 10 years from now, this stuff could really come back to, to hurt you just taking such stances that right now are hundred percent rational, like, you know, mm -hmm. like the rest of us, but it's going to, they always ever living or ever moving goalposts that we're constantly battling. Do you, yeah. does it ever bother you or scare you that some of the stuff you're saying or putting out on Twitter could come back to get you canceled or, or ruin your income or livelihood 10 years from now? 
Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, which is why, um, like I love the work I do, but also I feel pretty comfortable, um, working in the space that I do because as of right now, I'm trying to build skills that will keep me kind of doing the work that I'm doing for the rest of my life. Cause I've always wanted to dedicate my life to like, this is my pin tweet. Cause it's very true. Like I've always wanted to dedicate my life to helping people. Um, so I think I'll stay in the political space for a long time. And I also think um, you're completely correct. There are moving goalposts every single day. I think we should take note of that. And I do get a lot of anxiety about Twitter. I really do. Um, and I never intended to build an audience there. Like, right. really, I got on about a year ago. That's when I really started tweeting. Um, a year ago? Damn. Yeah. Dang. I've been on there since 2009. I think I have like 300 followers. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really know what happened. You know what I mean? Um, I really don't. And I remember hitting like 10K and the oh crap moment set in for me that there's a lot of people viewing what I put out there. Um, So sometimes I just try to turn off that part of my brain. But really... Right now, I'm trying to inject a certain level of goodness into what I'm putting out into the universe Um, because, like, I know in the future they might go through and try to pick certain tweets to paint me as a bad person. But right now, at least I want to be a positive influence online for people. And, you know, I I think the whole... The whole thing is to just stay rational and positive and understand where people are coming from. And I know that you can't fight the cancel mob. I know that you can't. But no. I think I think because my entire generation is so online, we're all going to have a little bit of a reckoning coming for us in our adult years. And I just hope that we can all forgive ourselves for things that we said that were stupid mm-hmm. or have some grace for each other. That's something I've really been focusing on recently um, because I left my last employment over some really awful stuff that was happening to me. But that really inspired me to really like take a look at my own humanity and other people's humanity and extend some grace and um, try to assume that people are coming from a good place. And that people are not trying to hurt you. Um, and a lot of times if they are hurting you, they're they're hurting themselves. And we've all been in that situation too. So again, extending grace, extending forgiveness. And I'm I am hopeful that because my generation is so unhinged, that there will come a time like there came for me where the expectations they are upholding for others become so overwhelming for themselves that they have, they're forced to take a look at the Mm -hmm. expectations they have for other people that they themselves cannot live up to or are struggling really hard to live up to and understand that forgiveness is one of the biggest reasons so many people have embraced Christianity and other religions. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness Mm -hmm of the most good, wholesome things to inject into your life and to give to others. 
you know, Amen. I think, I think Agreed. people just don't get it yet. So you know? I agree with 99.9% of what you said, but there's 0.1%. I'm oh still going to, I'm still going to harass blue check marks on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I can't let it go. Well, they were asking for it by having a blue check mark. I mean, right. I can't let it go. But everything else I agree with. Yeah, that's a very good perspective. And so, you know, we if have... I disappear off Twitter, it's because I said I shared a meme harassing a blue check that I shouldn't have shared. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, and maybe we've... maybe I they can forgive me. I Hopefully. hope so. I think they can. Yeah. We've kind of gone through like the same mental experiments of like, you know, things you're putting out right now on podcasts that might not age so well, even though we pretty well dot our I's and cross our T's. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, saying taxation is theft might be like, in a, you know, put you in prison 10 years from now. But who knows? <laughs> but um, well, I'll see you guys there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's kind of what the, I've kind of accepted it, too, instead of like losing sleep over it. Because I never even intended to start a political podcast. I'd, yeah, I'm actually working on a podcast. I'm doing like a historical documentary series, but I built this room that I soundproofed, yeah. and I'm not done with yeah. my research yet. So I started. I just want to do a podcast where I talked about anything and everything that interests me with people who know more than myself. Um, but I started the week after the election, so it started out political, mm-hmm. and then my buddies got involved, and my brother, and it just stayed political. It's I'm kind of accepting it now. Yeah. So I've kind of been very careful like did, did i want to get into this because like right now my name's tied to it and this mm-hmm. stuff could not age well it could cost you a you know employment yeah. or job opportunity in the future who knows not that i'm looking for that but mm-hmm. you don't know how things are going to age but then i look back at everything we've ever said i listen back to every single episode before i post it i know like eh, that's too far i take it out that sounds good i leave it in so if i'm thinking that right now then they were going to get me anyways like if I can't say these yeah. things, then the like the game over. Like we, you're going to get me another six months down the road or another year down the road if it wasn't for that. Yeah. Like there is going to be such a radical culture shift that, um, you know, I guess just put me yeah. in a gas chamber. I don't know for saying words. Well, <laughs> you never know if it's going to go more this way or that way, right? Like right. right now, we seem to be on the roller coaster headed towards destruction, but mm. we never know. Um. Which is why I've been urging conservatives to take a different approach, conservatives and libertarians, instead of just like full on trying to punch back, become the rational human. You know what I mean? Right, uh, become right. the rational human, become the kind one, become the person that doesn't just like start throwing punches because you're not providing a space for people to escape to. And people want to escape to that wholesomeness that kindness that goodness um at least that's my perspective i could be wrong i'm 22 years old so i don't know what i'm doing but that sounds, sounds yeah you know, pretty insightful for a 22 year old um <laughs> but yeah i mean that's that's kind of what you know our kind of uh look on it is you know we're not like idiots like those people going to dc to protest an election it's like i would rather fight these fights by starting a podcast and having discussions that might change somebody's mind that, you know, was like right. Tyler. Or I was back when we were 18, like heart, you know, he was left. I was right. And then we're open minded enough to be like, Whoa, I was wrong. Like this is way better. Yeah. Like, so I think there's, I'd rather reach people like that than try to change policy in Washington, DC right now. Or, ta- seems... or steal Nancy Pelosi's uh, podium. Right. Yeah. That seems like, what does that way solve? It, no, that's I mean, but it was so funny. I'm it was so funny. funny. No, and, and that's oh, what, like I kind of I disagree with them calling it an, an insurrection because 
Like it was just a bunch of boomers taking photos on Nancy Pelosi's yeah. desk. Yeah. Like that right. was the most. If that was an insurrection, that was the latest be, insurrection I've ever yeah. seen. In my they life. completely yeah. blew their chance. Yeah. What a, yeah. What a, they <laughs> they embarrassed themselves. There was no you think strategy. That an American insurrection would be a lot more yeah. uh, tactical. You know. Yeah. yeah exactly. Like, so come on. Yeah. I feel you. Um. I think another thing to add is just like, I've, when it comes to doing things that you regret or saying things that you regret, um, the people that are genuinely interested in people's growth as a human being, all they want to hear is that you've changed your mind or that you're sorry. So if you're not sorry, don't apologize for things um, because then you'll have a track record of lying about being sorry. But something I've done frequently on Twitter, because sometimes I'm just shooting from the hip and <laughs> things don't land all the time. Um, the ones that I genuinely stand by, like today, I genuinely stand by what I said. I will not apologize. I won't back down, whatever. But if I legitimately feel like maybe I was bad with my wording or, um, you know, I, the comments have left me with a new perspective. Mm -hmm. I'll just tell people that I've changed my mind on the issue. Right. And a lot of people are so scared to do that because they think it makes them seem weak or flip floppy. And they just double down. It makes you seem yeah. so much more intelligent and intellectually honest. And people trust you when you actually change your mind and tell people that you changed your mind and you don't just like double down on things you don't believe in. Right. Because if you don't go that route and you just double down on something that you you know you in your heart you disagree with and you, your mind's been changed, but you won't do it publicly, mm -hmm. you just paint yourself into an irrational corner that people go yeah. like, wow, this person's crazy. You lose all, you lose all credibility right. if you do that. So, yeah, I mean, I what do you do if somebody says like, oh, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. It's like, do you keep swinging and punching at them? You go, oh. Good. Glad to have yeah. you on my side. Like yeah. nobody wants to yeah. team up on someone that's like, no, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Like if you yeah. generally mean it, like, I think that's a great thing. And it, very few people have it. It seems to be, you know, as I said about libertarians in general, no one's really born a libertarian. Mm -hmm. Maybe my kids because they have me as a father. I'm going to try to instill that. But, um, <laughs> but the rest of us, like you come from the right or the left and it's like, mm -hmm. but you're, it's a certain demographic of people that are even open to having their opinions challenged and their minds changed in the first place. Yeah. So I think that's a large reason why we're such a small demographic of the population because nobody likes having their mind changed and saying they were 1%. wrong. Yeah. One. One percent. I will say this about libertarians, though. I've noticed this tendency to when your mind is being changed, you just get more and more libertarian. And that's all well and good. Like, love me some radical libertarians. But <laughs> I know a couple. I sometimes the online echo chamber, the reason there's a libertarian online echo chamber and most libertarians become radicalized pretty quickly is because you don't have like in-person interaction with libertarians, right? So all of it's online. And it, it really is, yes. It's hard when the only time you are discussing politics is when you're online in these very radical echo chambers. And I think something that has kind of created a divide between me and other libertarians, and I don't mean it to, is that I really believe that the cause of freedom is the most important fight of our lifetime. And 
I am willing to learn the game in order to make that happen because, mm-hmm. and I don't think that other libertarians aren't. I think that sometimes this idea of like a third party or, um, you know, doing this or doing that, sometimes that's more attractive and easier to digest um, and makes you feel less gross. But like, I really do believe that the system is the system and it's not changing by playing on the sidelines and libertarians have to, yes, like learn the ideology, like question yourself, challenge yourself, always keep pushing. You can be consistent, but also interact with the real world, right? Interact with how libertarianism can win in the real world. And a lot of those answers people aren't going to like because it's the GOP. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and I the GOP. The GOP. And actually, that's that's uh, around the time you started kind of saying that stuff. Is I think when I started following you on Twitter. Nice. Okay. Because I was like, <laughs> finally, like there was a, another there was another gentleman that used to be on Twitter. He's not anymore. What's his and, name? And uh, it was crowdfunded government. I remember that he, account. Yeah. Yeah, and. I remember hearing him, I think he was on the former, formerly known as the fag cast at the time. Mm-hmm. And he, he was on there and he presented that argument. And I had this moment where I was like, holy shit, like he's right. Yeah. Because the, the libertarian party is never going to win. It could be, yeah. it could be a propaganda arm to, to, you That's know, right. like it could be a propaganda arm to either radicalize Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to say vulnerable, but uh, mo- you know, conservatives that are open to yeah. new ideals, it, yeah. it could radicalize them, or or use, you know, it, it could use certain politicians, which there's there's a few of them in the Republican Party, to really use them as like the beacon of of hope and and the voice within the party. That's, I mean, that's that's what AOC and her crew did to the Democrats. Yeah. They, right, and you brought up a really good point about like you know the echo chambers, like there, you know, the rabbit holes are great to go down to to educate yourself, but you got to be really careful how you pull that back and present that to the kind of blue pilled normies that you interact with. Like, if you hang out long mm-hmm. enough listening to, you know, Dave Smith podcasts and going on you know, all these YouTube videos and all that, you get yourself very fired up and very well educated, and you can be right on mm-hmm. a lot of it. But if you go to a dinner party and you're like. We need to abolish, you know, the Department of Education. Those be <laughs> yeah. like, holy shit, check please. Yeah. Like this guy's yeah. nuts. Like, oh my god, this person is a nutcase. Right, that's what that's how you come off. Or it's like they're not at your level yet. You just like turn the yeah. heat to eleven. Yeah. Like, you know, you gotta warm yeah. them up a little. They, bit. they think you're 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 Alex Jones light. Yeah, <laughs> Alex Jones light. Yeah. Well, they're turning the frogs gay. It's this um, like normal people aren't used to thinking the way we do, and that's okay. Like. You can't expect everyone to come from the place that you come from. Right. And, you know, I think libertarian messaging is definitely um, a lot of it is um, kind of centered in dude talk. <laughs> and that's totally fine. For, but like, for the record, you're, you're the first woman we've ever had on the podcast. So, but yes. less than, less than 30 episodes. Talk. Less than 30. <laughs> Come on, let's not get too crazy. <laughs> uh, but yes, thanks for giving us diversity. Yeah, it's a lot of it is centered in dude talk. And like, 
dudes are great. You know, dudes get me fired up. Like I, I, I love Dave Smith. Um, Scott Horton is so, so smart. Um, and I love the energy and the fire and the passion. That's what gets me who is already ideologically aligned, fired up to go about my day with. But when it comes to, um, like other people that are not, that have no introduction to this, um, a lot of times you have to work them up. You have to do what we were talking about before, um, attack the left from the left, attack the right from the right, and kind of slowly introduce them to things. Um, and especially women, like <laughs> we are very emotion driven. Actually, most people are emotion driven. Um, it's not just women. And we don't like to think that about ourselves. We like to think that we're purely rational human beings, but we're not. So telling stories, giving emotionally, emotionally compelling cases for liberty, um, attacking specific policies one at a time, um, all of these can build up to a cultural change, you know, but going full force, and I say this all the time and people get really mad at me about it because they think I'm attacking like Dave Smith and I'm not, I love him, but like going full force, hardcore to like a normie, it's not going to work. So you're going to lose it. So hard. I've tried, I'm guilty. Of it. I've done it before. And like, I've tried to ask some normie friends and I'm like, that approach doesn't work. But then, you know, that's the thing to do is you go back, you reevaluate, re you try a different tactic next time. And it I found work on your normie libertarian friends, though, to radicalize right. them, it will work on them. But yeah, I mean, Tyler's been radicalizing me for like two years now. I was like, you know, a minarchist. He's like, no, dude, you gotta go farther. And I'm like, hold on, pump the brakes. But I don't know. <laughs> so, oh my God. Part of that is because I've been moving around the country for the last two years. So I spent a lot of time alone to go down the rabbit hole. Oh, dear. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's reading Ayn Rand and Lenin, you know, at the same time. Just, yeah. there's, there's a lot to be learned from Lenin. Mm -hmm. yeah. The communists had some points up until their their method of implementation is a little off, but yeah. So I listen to leftists pretty frequently um, because I don't want to be um, I don't want to exist in an echo chamber. I would say my the people that I follow are pretty split across <laughs> the board. And I think it's really important to constantly challenge the ideas that you hold so sacred because you could be wrong and you probably will change your mind on certain things. And back to if you say something stupid that gets you canceled in the future, like um, one, if you're not saying something that's hurtful to other people, I think you're fine. But if you are, I think just like genuinely apologizing or actually just, you know, um, Living it. Out why you felt that way in the moment and kind of mm -hmm. working on some of the anger is is the best way to go. Um, our, my generation will have to reap the consequences of how they've treated people through cancel culture, though. I think the people who will reap the consequences are the ones who sent death threats and who called people's offices, especially once they start to make mistakes as any adult human in the world does, they're going to have to reconcile with themselves how they were able to be such a harsh judge, jury and executioner on another individual that they don't know. 
you know. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're they're gonna have it, it'll eventually the the mob will start to eat itself. Well, you, you already saw it with that that uh that woman who was on The Bachelor, where she was like all about canceling people, and then it just came back and bit her because she had, she had a bunch of what's now considered racist tweets from 2012. Yeah, that, like came and just it just ate her alive and ruined her livelihood. Mm-hmm. And it's like you fed this beast, you made it, and it came back and ate you. Like I I, I don't have any sympathy for you. Like nobody is immune to these moving goalposts. I mean, there was a there was a tweet going around of Michelle Obama reading Dr. Seuss books to kids, and it's like, well, now Dr. Seuss is racist. So here you are spreading systemic racism. I mean, nobody is immune to it. No, we're not. And I think, I think the um, the tendency to like point fingers it really comes from a place of insecurity about your own past mistakes. You know, I when I was. 15 years old and kind of sucked into this whole world. Um, I was the harshest critic of myself straight up. I, there was like, I was mean to other people thinking I was being nice, but Oh my God, my inner monologue was awful. And I can't imagine that it's that much different for a lot of these people. I do think there are probably legitimate narcissists that just think they are incredible, but like, I think a lot of them really feel some um, pressure and some guilt about um, even thoughts in their head. You know, I think they're probably much worse critics of themselves. They won't tell you that. But eventually, in order to kind of escape that mental prison, they're going to have to come away from the whole um, you're not able to be forgiven and kind of embrace forgiveness and grace, um, which is honestly a big reason I got back into church because um, the reason I think God had such a hold on even a lot of our parents is because of that concept. And a lot of people call Christians like they're, they're like, well, you're not perfect. And it's like, yeah, that's the point, you know, like right. it's all about <laughs> accepting the fact that you're imperfect and trying better the next day. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's very true. I was raised uh, by strict Catholic parents where we had to go to church every Sunday, do all the sacraments. And in my late teens, early twenties, I kind of dwindled away. I, mm-hmm. I never didn't believe in God, but I just kind of stopped. Like yeah. there's some Catholic stuff that kind of just, um, no disrespect to anyone as Catholic. I've seen it do great things for my parents, but um, yeah. there's just too much inconsistencies for me at the time. I was like, I, I can't handle this. Um, but then fast forward at 25, I meet my wife. She has a daughter. We have three more kids and I got four kids by 30. And, you know, they're going to public education or my oldest is. And, you know, basically they're making like, you know, like uh, Martin Luther King and stuff. Those might as well be Jesus. They're like, these are the new religious figures that the government puts in because they took God out of school. And it's like, yeah. no disrespect to Martin Luther King, but it's like the way they present it. It's like God doesn't exist. These are the like religious figures in our religion. And it's like, it's kind of pushed me to be like, okay, we need to get a little back more. And now we're going to church. Like it's kind of self-corrected in a way um, where it's like, it, I see the reason why it's like, you need people to believe that there's a higher power than man. Cause otherwise they will follow like some bad men in some bad directions. The, it's people need something to believe in. And when they don't believe in God, they, the state becomes God or, right. or they're, you know, they, they start to worship like false, false prophets. Yeah. Jason Stapleton always he has a great quote that says, uh, 
people are walking around with their umbilical cords looking for someone to plug it in or somewhere to plug it in. Like they just don't, they need someone that gives them like a source of inspiration and a guiding light. Yeah. And I think the whole um, concept of like a moral code, um, because I used to be an atheist. I was for a while. Um, And one of my least favorite points that Christians made was like, you don't have like a moral code from a higher power. So like, where does that come from? And I was like, me, but <laughs> like, I'm just a moral person. But um, one thing that really isn't discussed is like, well, if your moral code comes from you in the moment of like any whim can blow you like the wind because you're not held accountable to something higher than yourself. And when it comes to Jesus, I was listening to uh, Liberty Lockdown's uh, most recent podcast. I don't know if you guys heard it, but oh my God, it was so good. Um, I forget who we had on. Crap. Anyways, um, he was talking about how in society we need the scapegoat figure um, to kind of sacrifice. And Jesus was that for us. Jesus was like a 30 year old man. Um, some could describe him as like the scapegoat of Mm -hmm. their time. That's why he was crucified. And all this time later, like we're still, we are still looking at the man who was scapegoated and that's happening a lot in our current culture where people get kind of scapegoated, martyred, whatever for this false, like false sense of good. Um, right. Like for the culture, for the end groups to be satisfied so that we can have like our bloodthirst will be satisfied. So we don't have to take a look at ourselves and each other as like flawed human beings. So we just find the person that it's easy to scapegoat. And Jesus was that he was the scapegoat. And that's what they talked about in that episode. And it just blew my mind. Um, that like there are so many lessons to be taken from that. And I think on all sides of the spectrum, um, politically, we do that to people. We, um, we want to turn people into monsters that they aren't. Right. You know? Yeah. It's a fair point. Like, you know, you know, I, I despise Bernie Sanders. I think the, the policies that he advocates for economically, are monstrous, but I don't think the guy is intentionally a monster. I think he has a very good intentions. Like all, a lot of bad people throughout history, like, yeah. Hey, you know, the road to hell is paid with good intentions. Yes. Um, like he really does care about poor people. I do believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, just not, doesn't want to give his money to poor yes. people. I think he makes a million dollars and that's different. Um, yeah. but yeah, I think there's, uh, certainly a lot of truth to that. And even those people that are canceling others and sending the death threats and whatever, um, like we can definitely look at them as horrible people because they're destroying livelihoods, but they are pursuing something that they think is good. And even though we can't understand it, like they feel like they have good intentions. Mm -hmm. And the only way to get through to someone is to meet them with the respect that you want them to meet you. So the only way to like actually break through to a person like this is to start by assuming that they have good intentions. Right. That's the thing is everybody thinks they are the good guy in the movie. Yeah. So if you come and approach them like they're the villain, 
you're not going to get through to them right away. They're going to think you're the villain because you're on the opposite side of them. Mm-hmm. So it, once again, it goes back to attacking the right from the right and the left from the left. And that's, it is the most effective approach I've found. And it's definitely done me a good service in my uh, mm-hmm. more formative years that I've kind of really, you know, come into my own ideologies now and not just regurgitating what Rush Limbaugh told me <laughs> when I was <laughs> 18 years old. Yeah. For sure. For sure. That's true. So, um, if you don't mind, I'm, I've, I've prepared three questions for you oh, dear. To, to end this episode on a light note. Okay. Your three extremely random questions. All right. We'll, we'll end this one on a light note and our listeners will get to learn a little bit more about you. So the first one, did you see when John Brennan was on MSNBC talking about libertarians? No. Oh, he... It was right after January 6th, and he described libertarians as radicals And when they were talking about how they need to pass sweeping dem- domestic terrorist reform. We were an afterthought, though. He said a bunch of groups. And, oh, yeah, and we were like the last one. So yeah. see, that's what I mean. We always are. Yeah. <laughs> so with that, now, now that you know that, okay, so they passed the sweeping reform. John Brennan and his cronies capture you for questioning. And they want to know more about who you work for and who, you know, who's radicalizing who. So what song do they play on repeat to get you to talk? Oh, this is a good one. Oh, my God. Um, Probably, like, uh, I really don't like Ed Sheeran. I really don't. He drives me insane. So maybe one of his songs, um, maybe the party rock anthem. Do you all remember that song? Oh, that was was high school music for us. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe that. Um, Actually, no metal. If they play metal, I'm done for. You're squealing. I hate my <laughs> I feel like everyone who likes it is just pretending to like it. That's an actual opinion, and you can quote me. Okay, so <laughs> that's good. Um, the next one: If you had to hang out for a whole day with either Mitch McConnell or Nancy Pelosi, who would you pick and why? Hmm. I feel like. I would hang out with Mitch McConnell. I know that's like the obvious answer for me, but here's why I would hang out with Mitch McConnell because I'm always very interested in getting a behind the scenes look at the people who I am in direct competition with. And I don't see the Liberty movement being in competition with the Democrats because we're not, that's its own separate league of power, right? They have their captured group with Republicans. I really do think that it's like, Liberty versus neocons versus paleo, like all these different end groups. So I would like to spend a day with Mitch McConnell just to figure out what's going on in his, his brain, you know, and kind of. Yeah. I bet you there there's, there's a lot more to it than what people think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And the last one, this is the most controversial one. Oh dear. So I'm, I'm assuming since you've worked in the Liberty movements, you've done some traveling. Mm-hmm. So which region or city in the country do you feel makes the best pizza? Ooh, careful. Choose your words wisely. <laughs> it's controversial. So <laughs> I love talking crap about New York pizza because it pissed like 
Oh, they get so offended. People, y'all are used to people talking crap about your pizza, but it's, we're Illinois. Yorkers, we're used to New Yorkers yeah. are like egomaniacs about their pizza, and it's not that good. Okay, so you know who makes the best pizza? Papa John's in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Oh, oh that's, that's, a, a, that's a, a strong take. statement. Wow. That's a spicy take. <laughs> oh man, I, I hope that I hope that. By random chance, Dave Portnoy listens to this, and he, he, I oh. see him rolling out of Baton Rouge, their, their flagship Papa John store. Yeah, <laughs> one bite, everyone knows the rules. Wow, what a powerful! He just came out with the papadillas. They're like pizza quesadillas. I'm on a diet, so I can't eat them, but they're so wow. good. they're so good. <laughs> All right, that's that's right. a spicy take. I love there it. That's go. a perfect ending. Uh, one last question. Um, we just decided this week, actually, but I'm um, just wondering, are you going to be going to Freedom Fest um, this July in, in Rapid City, South Dakota? I've been thinking about it. Yeah, I really want to. I'm going to have to get the time off work, but I think it takes place during kind of a more, um, I think it takes place right after session for Louisiana. So I think I'll be able to get the time off. Okay. Yeah, we just this is kind of a plug for us to talk to our listeners too. But I figured I might as well ask you. But yeah, we <laughs> we just uh, committed this week that we will be there as part of the media, and hopefully get to talk to some of the the speakers there. And I'm excited because I got four little kids, and I have not done anything vacation wise for years. Mm-hmm. And this is like our first kind of semi get out of the house with the whole family. But um, yeah, we'll be uh, we'll be there July twenty third. So yeah, hopefully I'll be there too. I mean. I haven't been to a like specifically Liberty event in a very long time. And I just need some of that goodness back in my life. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, also, just events, events in general. I haven't done yeah. any in the last year and a half because of the, you know, the world, but What's fun? <laughs> What's fun is? So. really cool. Well, Maggie, thank you so much for your time. And if, if you want now, go ahead and give any plugs and anything you want to give for our listeners to, to find you or anything you want them to know about. All right. Yeah. Follow me on Twitter at Liberty Anders. That's really the only place I'm active on social media. Um, But yeah, you can find me there and hopefully you'll find me at Freedom Fest. I would love to meet up with some of uh, my mutuals on Twitter that I've been interacting with for a long time. But last thing, I had so much fun, you guys. Thank you for having me on. Anytime. We appreciate it. All right. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you. Take care. Thanks. Bye.